Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Greg Ramsey. Greg is a corporate M&A lawyer, as well as an entrepreneur. Now, he comes across as a low-key kind of guy, but the reality is, is he's been in boardrooms with some of the global elites in business. He's been counsel on numerous deals that are measured well into the hundreds of millions of dollars while navigating highly complex structures, as well as managing the personalities of the executives and investors at the table. I asked Greg to be on for a few reasons. First is that in executing these deals, he has a unique vantage point in seeing how the ultra-rich think and execute their strategies. He speaks about the day two deals as part of the chess game they're playing. He also discusses how management teams can make better use of the relationships with their legal team. I also asked Greg to be on because he's an entrepreneur and the founder of his own firm, Made It Legal. He has global legal experience in M&A, but his passion is in helping small businesses succeed by making solid legal counsel more accessible to cash-strapped entrepreneurs. His platform and approach are gaining traction, both by small businesses and the interest from other legal firms, especially because they're looking to adjust to changing marketplaces. And as we transition from talking big legal into small business, we talk about how you should approach buying a business. A key point here is how imperative it is that you slow down and perform thorough due diligence in going through the buying process. Given recent events and the succession crunch many business owners are facing, this is really fitting and frankly, it's great advice. So I hope you enjoy this interview as you'll hear some great perspectives that very few people get to experience in real life, as well as some actionable tips that may help you appreciate your lawyers a little more. So enjoy the show. On the line, I have Greg Ramsey, who's a former corporate mergers and acquisitions lawyer and now the founder of Made It Legal. Greg, welcome to the show. And I want to, uh, well, I want to hand it over to you to give us a background on yourself and your law career. And as a caveat to that, I actually have to say that I, I know a lot of that career. You and I have been great friends for a number of years. I've found it fascinating the work you're doing and while well, you've work you've done and now that you're doing. So what do you say I hand it over to you? You can introduce yourself and we can get into what it is to be a lawyer in the world of corporate M&A and, and small business law as well. Thanks, Corey. Um, super happy to be here. And yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be talking about all these topics, which we've done for, I don't know how many years now, probably a, a good 10 years or so which sort of goes into to my career. I think we actually met kiteboarding when I just finished up law school back in 2009 and starting off my career at Bennett Jones. 
Ben and Jones, I, I had a, a general corporate practice and I focused mostly on M&A work and also a lot of corporate finance. So in that area, I was focusing mostly on, on banking. So I did uh, large scale credit facilities for a variety of businesses across various industries. I did a lot of work in the aerospace side of things. So helping airlines finance and lease their aircraft and engines and, and that sort of thing. And I also did some corporate structure work as well. So that's more on the general corporate side of things. But when we look at a a large enterprise, how do we focus on the needs for the structure? Are we doing it as limited partnerships and corporations? And oftentimes, of course, there's both. So that was all part of my practice at, at Bennett Jones. Yeah, it has been 10 years, man. And some of the discussions we've had on the deals you've been a part of and and your career when you moved on to the next position and now made it, take us there. I mean, there's some a lot of interesting things you did in the next form of your career. Yeah, so after Bennett Jones, I was very pleased to have an opportunity to work at one of the uh, divisions of Brookfield. So your listeners probably know Brookfield as a very large organization that it is. A uh, very successful, of course, enterprise that has global reach. And you know, as Canadians, we should be pretty proud of, of having a company like Brookfield be having such a strong Canadian story. But yeah, I, I went to Brookfield. I was with Brookfield Residential, which later became Brookfield Properties Development. And in that world, I was I had a senior legal counsel position. Uh, had a, a a whole ton of, of different responsibilities there. It was a pretty lean legal team, which gave me a fantastic opportunity to see a variety of deals. So I worked in uh, the M&A space. We would manage all of the mergers and acquisitions that, that we were quite active in, in both Canada and the US. I also did a lot of work on corporate finance, of course. So, so uh, we did uh, a number of publicly traded debt offerings, so note offerings in both Canada and the United States. And we worked on a number of credit facilities as well. So we can get into some examples of the deals that we did. But on the credit facility side of things, for example, we put in a, I have to refresh my memory on the exact amount, but I believe it was $675 million cross-border credit facility that was dual currency. So Canada and the United States, which uh, at the time was a pretty novel way of structuring a credit facility. And it allowed us to have a lot of nimbleness to both borrow for our U.S. and Canadian operations and to, to have a means by which we could move funds across the border as needed to, to fund where our operations needed it the most. Also, I uh, headed up governance. So my role was to be the corporate secretary and to assist the chairman of the board and the CEO and the, the executives to create a board of directors governance program. So that would involve everything from corporate level policies like uh, a code of conduct, but also advising the board on risk matters and litigation. Lastly, to round it all off, actually, I guess there's two more things, uh, the corporate structure side of things. So that was was my responsibility as well to figure out, for example, what the risk profile was on a certain project. And did that mean that, did it require its own standalone entity? Were there joint venture partners being involved as well? And what did that mean for the corporate structure side of things? And then uh, lastly, I was the privacy officer. So I got my, my hands very deep into privacy laws. You know, being a, a cross-border organization, we had to look at both Canada and the United States. Uh, and then more broadly as well, though, we, we of course had to work 
on uh, GDPR, so the General Data Protection Regulation coming out of the European Union, which impacted organizations around the world. There's a lot here, man. And I mean, I want to touch on some of those deals in the sense that you help facilitate or put together the call it the paperwork and, and the structures behind major, major multi, you know, multi hundred million dollar loan agreements, note agreements, that money is then in turn used to go and invest in and do acquisitions and things like that, which, you know, further takes you down your legal career. We can also go down the path of governance. And I've seen more and more reports on how governance and public companies actually can return an ROI. And those who are better governed, even at a small level, or, you know, they have a better opportunity or, or are in a better position to succeed. And then we can also go into privacy in itself, because I think we don't know, we don't even know what we don't know when it comes to privacy and small business and large business now. But let's start with some of the deals you've been on, though, because you've sat in the room with multiple billionaires, individuals who have incredible assets, incredible power, and you've been through some big deals. And so can you tell us about some of the, the maybe M&A things you've gone through? Because there's a lot of personalities at the table. Yeah, I think in, in business in general, there's like personality is huge. <laughs> and especially when you get into these M&A deals, uh, you know, you get uh, very charged up personalities uh, and charged up in the sense that the deals are big and they're important. Sometimes uh, you're dealing with the founder of a business that you're acquiring as well. That's put their you know, really their heart and soul and their intelligence into this business for, for decades. And now you're acquiring it. So yeah, personality becomes a really interesting factor. In terms of insights, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that, that we could talk about these things. So, you know, let's see where the, the conversation goes. But one thing that's always struck me with dealing with some of these business leaders that are, are in these top echelon positions in really international business is how strategically they think all the time, which is one of the, the lessons that I've learned on, on all these deals. For example, when acquiring a business, the thought pattern wasn't just where do we stop with the acquisition? It's very much like a chess game. So what, what's the move two or three steps down the transaction line after acquisition? So we would always think of them as what's the day two deal? By thinking that way, it, it very much follows almost a decision tree focus. You know, if factor A happens and we're going to go down a certain route, if it's factor B. Well, the, the way a lot of these highly successful business minds approach these deals is they say, we're going to acquire this company. How can we immediately create value by creating a day two or day three or day four transaction involving these assets so that it almost becomes... And I say almost because it's never certain, but it almost becomes profitable the moment that you acquire it. So you're recording your transaction costs very quickly. You are looking for an opportunity where you can bring in strategic partners that are involved in the deal. So, so maybe you're the acquirer of the entity, but you have a host of other companies behind you that are backing the deal that are also interested in how they can participate in the, the upside of the assets. So by structuring these day two, day three transactions on it, you're already thinking ahead of not only do I acquire this company, but how am I making it successful from day one? And that really is the process that drives these ultra successful companies. So 
it, it is really interesting to start to open the door of, of what these conversations would be like. I mean, that's, it is so true, right? You just don't acquire something and go, okay, great. Now we have to build on this. It's okay. Now that we've acquired this, what's day two, day three, and so on. How big was this chessboard? What was the timeline on the, on the conversations here and, and how in depth were some of the dialogues you'd have in the boardrooms? A lot of these deals actually did have a pretty pretty long timeline. So, and that's true of any deal that I've I've worked on, whether it was at Bennett Jones or later on at Brookfield or some of the deals that I've worked on in the last year or so that I, I've had my own practice. The timeline of discussion starts early. Then the important thing to think of is how do we, for example, if we want to bring in other strategic partners and structure those day two, day three sort of deals in monetizing the assets right away or monetizing the acquisition right away. There needs to be, of course, a lot of discussion that way among the strategic partners. And also importantly, there needs to be a conversation with the target entity as well, because when you are acquiring a target entity, it's not that you, you don't have free reign, for example, to share their confidential information with other people that, that you may want to bring into the deal post-acquisition. So there has to be a longer discussion on the bounds of the confidentiality provisions. So if we have a confidentiality agreement, the discussion has to happen earlier about, hey, we may want to bring in these other partners. For example, a partner that excels in commercial office space. As a developer, we're more interested in the residential assets, but the, the acquisition is, is involving more than just residential. We have commercial as well. And we have a strategic partner that we want to bring on to assist with the commercial side of things. So then you get into a discussion about whether there's any, any opposition to sharing information with that strategic partner. So I, I, I'm trying to paint the picture here that it's not a quick decision where you can execute this in like two weeks or even perhaps a month or two. So you need to start early. And that's where the value of relationships are so important going into any deal. So yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's a really important mindset as well that these people have. It's it's always keeping their partners close, staying in contact, and then when they when they see a potential deal that can involve others, starting the conversation earlier rather than later. You know, these things they're measured in months and years. The impacts of these months and years of of the the strategy and the execution on large deals is what gets translated into the quarterly financial reports and results. Is there, in those discussions you've been a part of, is there actually a concern or a connection there? Or is it almost, yeah, is it almost irrelevant when you're having these discussions at at such a high level? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's a great question because it's almost an elephant in the room because as, especially if you're, if we're talking about a publicly traded company, it of course has a duty to its stakeholders. Depending on the shareholder mix, there can be some some very strong activist shareholders out there that that want to see results. And for whatever reason, the world operates on these arbitrary timelines in the sand, as as you know, and we've talked about in our various conversations and road trips and such about how strange it is that that we draw this line in the sand and in the times of sand, and, and we've got to meet a goal by that date in the world of corporate finance and. What's the annual uh, financial, where the annual financial is going to look like? What's the quarterly reporting look like? Has the earnings per share been missed or not? And the reason why I say it's an elephant in the room, because of course, it's on the mind of executives and directors on the board level of how are we going to 
perform and what's that going to be reflected like in the markets and our share price and our investors. So I think it's unavoidable to have those things in the mind. And so, yeah, I think it's true that deal timelines can sometimes be influenced by when is the next quarterly period coming up? Can we get this done by the end of the year? Because our investors are looking for it and it's going to create value for the shareholders and for the company. Hmm. So yeah, it's on the mind. However, I would say that the disciplined business leaders that I came to know and respect because of their discipline wouldn't let that be the driving force behind their decision-making. So they were aware of it, but they were highly disciplined to say, we're going to do what makes sense and do what's right. And I have seen deals where business leaders and organizations have invested just tons of time and money and put a, a legal team of 20 lawyers on it. And, and we've gone through three months of due diligence. And there's a lot of pressure to perform and, and even to, to say, yeah, this would be a fantastic thing to get done before quarter end. But then we pull the plug because the deal just didn't make sense. The due diligence wasn't attractive. The day two, day three deals perhaps weren't coming through. So a disciplined approach, I think, is a better way to approach these things. Discipline is probably one of the the best ways to describe the Brookfield organization and what they've been able to build. I mean, it, it is a hell of a success story. So something else that I'm curious about is the role of lawyers in these deals. And, and as a lawyer, whether you're in-house or outside counsel, what is misunderstood about them? Oh, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could go into all the lawyer jokes out there. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, you guys seem to be the, the, uh, definitely the, the brunt of many jokes, but yeah. Well, so. well, I think there are, there's a lot of areas in which we could talk about this particular topic and lots of things to unpack. Let's start with the, the role of lawyers. So the way that I like to look at it and describe it to my clients is think of your legal team as being having two different roles. So you have your transaction legal team. And in here, we're, we're talking about the very large deals. So as an in-house lawyer, for example, I would retain lar- large law firms and we'd put a number of people on the deal. Sometimes it could be you know, just two or three other times we could have a whole host of even up towards of, of 20 lawyers, for example, working on some of the very big deals. So their role there is to, to do the transaction, the transaction machine, as I call it. So things like uh, if we're doing a notes offering, we need to write the, the indenture, for example. So the indenture is one of the principal documents that governs the relationship between the people buying these corporate bonds and notes and the obligations that the company is taking on. So everything from you know, repaying, but also uh, any sort of restrictive covenants, which are things like, are you allowed to go acquire other companies? And if you are, what are you allowed to spend? Uh, how much more debt are you allowed to take on? So those sorts of principal documents are huge, hundreds of pages long. So we get highly focused lawyers that specialize in these areas to wind up this transaction machine, start writing that paper and getting drafts going back and forth. And then you move to your in-house legal team. An in-house legal team's role is, is quite different on these large deals. So you don't want your in-house lawyer to be focusing all of his or her time on writing like a, a 300 page indenture for a notes offering. You want them to be focusing on things like due diligence and also having the, the merger of a legal mindset and a business mindset 
to do sort of legal and business risk management on what's going into all the paperwork on the deal. So talking about a, a notes offering, for example, I mentioned restricted covenants. The reason why investors want to see some restrictions on the way that the company can borrow and spend the money is they don't want the underlying value of the company to get stripped out too easily because then, of course, there's a credit risk. You know, is there enough value left in this company to repay the notes? But as a business, you want to be nimble enough to be able to allocate your capital as you need to to go make value. So you have to be able to do your business. So the role of the in-house lawyer is to look for that friction. So what are the investors demanding? What do we need to do for our business? And that's where the, the in-house lawyer really shines because they know the business super well. They're in it as well. So they're a business person and a lawyer. That's the, the roles. And I think that's an important distinction and often something that's misunderstood. You know, that's something that I, I take there and can see that in-house lawyer when they come in. I mean, I always viewed it as, as when do you get to that transition point that you've grown large enough that you can actually afford to have your in-house counsel. And back in a previous career of mine, I remember being at that position where we were having those discussions internally of like, man, we spend a lot of money on legal. Should we bring somebody in? But what I also, what I've taken away from this now is you discussing the, the need of like, when you have that internal person, they're not just there to crunch out documents that the firm could be doing. Their requirement as, as part of that team is to have the business mindset as well to marry the legal requirements and the legal needs of the business into the business strategy and the business, how do you say, the business requirements as well. So th that's an interesting one. And, and I don't know why that fell short on me before, but here we are. I guess that's the point of the podcast. Well, I think, it's a, I think it's a really good point because a lot of organizations, I saw this as well, like everywhere that I, I've worked at, whether it's at a firm or in-house with a large organization or even now, a common mistake is to not involve your, your lawyer, your legal team until much later in the process. And I think that's partly because, like you mentioned, organizations are saying, wow, you know, we, we really spend a lot on legal they don't want to, understandably, they don't want to spend it unless they have to, because it is a, a high cost item. However, you know, it, you, can, you can lose a lot of money by not involving your legal team early, uh, especially when we talk about due diligence, for example, whether something gets missed or not. And it, it, I think also understanding that the role of your lawyer isn't to be, you know, what, what we used to, to say is like being the no department or the no police, you know, to, to rain on the deal. I think that's where fit and personality type become important to make sure that depending on, on you know, your personality style as a business leader in the, the culture, that you have a lawyer that meets that, whether you know, that's more of like a, an innovative entrepreneurial mindset or more conservative, depending on what, what your, your corporations or your, your company's values are. But yeah, that, that's another pitfall that I would say is thinking too much of lawyers as just having bad news to give and uh, not involving them early enough to, to help you navigate the pitfalls. And then also, particularly with an in-house lawyer, to see the innovative side of things where business and legal, the business and legal mindset meet and can provide that value. You know, I think there's also probably a hesitation of lawyers to go beyond just expressing the, the risks and the gotchas and papering things up. And that hesitation comes to, to, to express, you know, potential strategies or opportunities or, hey, you know, I, I see an opportunity for your product here. 
very, I could quickly see a CEO or a management team looking and going, we don't pay you to do that. And we pay you a lot. So keep your mouth shut and just make sure we don't get into trouble. And it, it almost cuts off a potential partnership at the knees, having that mindset. Yeah. I, you know, you're, you're preaching to the choir on that one. That's a common frustration that, that I've felt throughout my career is, yeah, you know, you don't want to paint your lawyer into being in a box and saying the only value that we're looking from you is to make sure that the legal agreements are drafted correctly and the looking for major risk pitfalls. Some of the organizations that I've worked with, and, and I know this is going to sound perhaps a, a little bit self-serving here, but some of the organizations that I've worked with, especially over the last year, uh, maybe year or two, they see their lawyers as being being that partner that can provide, you know, an, almost like an innovation perspective. And what I mean by that is one of the things I really like about being a lawyer is I get to see a variety of deals from a variety of clients in a variety of industries. So that gives me often a, a really wide vantage point in terms of seeing business and, and what other organizations have done and just examples in the marketplace. So I think that's something that uh, business leaders can directly ask their lawyers and say, you know, what have you seen in other industries or in other deals? And what can we take from these examples you've seen in perhaps a totally different industry that could be applied to us here now to see a different avenue that we haven't thought of in a different way of creating value? Interesting. Well, I want to move into and transition over to small business law and what is really a passion of yours. This is what I thought was so interesting is you've been in boardrooms doing multi-hundred million dollar deals and well, navigating the, the ins and outs of those deals and the personalities at the table, but you've always had a side and, and a heart for small business and small business law and that led you to building Made It Legal. The first place I want to start though is kind of transitioning about talking about buying and selling businesses. I've had a number of people ask me about, you know, what do you do or how can I go about buying a business from a legal side and, and a, even a strategy side? What advice do you have for those buying businesses and managing through the legal matters? And I mean, let's keep it small. Let's keep it under 5 million or even under a million bucks. How do you manage the legal matters when moving in and going all in on a small business? Yeah. Uh, which is something that's really timely right now with COVID, for example, there's businesses under distress. And also like we were talking uh, before getting on the line here about we have a, an aging population that is looking to uh, exit from their businesses and particularly in the small business side of things, it's, it's more of a challenge to find buyers. The way that I would approach that question is how do you go about it? The step, whether it's a, a huge deal or, or a small one is to start with due diligence. And I really can't overstate how important due diligence is. And it's also one of those areas where I see, uh, particularly in the small business segment, a bit of a rush to get through it. And that's because there's a lot of excitement, well, especially in the, the smaller side of things. You're, we're, we're working with entrepreneurs. So we, we get excited about a deal and we want to make it happen. And it's go time. But due diligence is what really drives any sort of acquisition. And that's particularly true for, for smaller businesses because uh, we're working with entrepreneurs and I was saying that, that I love the entrepreneurial mindset and it's also a very quick start mindset. So when we, we get something into our minds, we wanna get it done very quickly. But an acquisition is really driven by due diligence. So why it's so important is we get 
through the due diligence process, we really get deep into the business that we're looking to acquire. So we're looking at things like, are there any sort of litigation risks out there? Are there lawsuits or pending claims that we need to factor in? If we're looking at buying some assets, or what liabilities and obligations are attached to those assets? So it's not just that we're buying perhaps a commercial office space, for example, but included with that commercial office space, are there any sort of past use issues on there? Was the, the, the area used for any sort of manufacturing that could have an environmental component to it? You know, that's just an example. So when we go deep into due diligence and we look for all the risks, but also the opportunities involved in the asset, it does two things. One, it can help us to understand the underwriting behind the deal. So are the assumptions that we put into the underwriting about cash flows and uh, the upside of this, are they supported by the due diligence? And if not, what do we do about that? Do we renegotiate the price or what do we do? And secondly, when you go through the due diligence side of things, we know a lot more about what we should be putting into the purchase agreement. So for example, uh, every purchase agreement will include representations and warranties. And what these are, are uh, promises by the, the business that we're acquiring about the state of the business. So if there's any sort of assumptions that we're relying on that have particularly come out through the due diligence process, then we want to make sure that the representations that we're relying on saying, you know, we're buying this company in reliance on these representations. We have to make sure that those representations are reflected by the due diligence process. So we're not missing anything important that we've discovered in that process. How about negotiating some of these points? Where do companies get held up? What are the hills to die on? And I think the other question is, is, is as an entrepreneur, where do you tell your, your lawyer to dig their heels in and not dig their heels in? Uh, in terms of uh, the first part, like what, what hill is there to die on? I remember once working on a, a very large acquisition that was complex and across Canada, the US, where that was repeatedly the question. It was like, like where do we... Where do we pull the plug? Where do we, is this a hill to die on? And anyways, I, I remember one uh, senior business leader in the organization saying, everything has its price. So it, it all just comes down to dollar and cents in some respects. But I think where you, you choose to, the hill to die on can be things like, well, in particular, looking at any risk points where there's high severity and anything beyond like a you know mid-level probability there's lots of events in business that are high severity low probability we can't eliminate all risk and, and we accept that so that's probably not a hill to die on but if you see a high severity event where the probability of it is starting to creep up you know is it 10 percent is it 20 percent 30 percent that will depend on the risk appetite of the organization but figure out where your probability threshold is when, when you're looking at these risk events. And that can be where, looping back to our previous conversation about discipline, that, that's where you get disciplined. And you say, you know, if, if in the due diligence process, we've looked at, for example, we want to buy this industrial property to manufacture our goods. Turns out before it was used to make, oh, I don't know, engines or some, some electronics, for example, use uh, various chemicals and components that, that have long tail environmental risk. So look at that and you say, you know, like we've, we've looked at it, we've done a phase one environmental study, maybe a phase two, uh, and we feel like it's, it's been settled. So 
probability is probably high, severity, or sorry, the, the severity could be high, but the probability is quite low. Mm. Go ahead with it. You know, if we were to assess that probability to be high, then, you know, that's where you need to get disciplined and say, we're going to choose this to be the spot where we, we just exit from this deal. And is this something you document? Do you actually say, okay, you know, here's a, on the severity, we're, we're, at, a, we're at an eight, and at the probability, we're, on a, we're at a 5%. Is that how you go through this, or is it more just a dialogue you have? Yeah, it's mostly what I've seen most business leaders do is, is have the dialogue because these things are more of a, an art than a science. But it is also a very good idea to have a, a written due diligence report after you're done. And, you know, again, speaking about role of in-house and external lawyers, that can be a point where, where you decide if you're going to outsource that or do that internally. But having a, a written due diligence report really helps you to get objective about these things. So by writing it down and, and you know, it doesn't have to be a super long exercise. It doesn't have to be hundreds of pages long, for example. But it's helpful to go into, for example, a board meeting and say, look, look here is the, the summarized due diligence findings and our assessment of risk and whether or not that assessment supports going ahead or not going ahead on the deal. Hmm. Okay. Thanks for that. I mean, it's, it's always nice hearing kind of the, the perspectives and I think it frames the mindset of, of the entrepreneur and the execs to how they can view and work with, their, with the lawyers better. Uh, what I do want to get into is the passion you have and, and, and just looking at our time, but that's made it legal. This is your company that you've built out as a technologically assisted platform, a legal platform to help small businesses. Can we get into it? Can you tell us about it? Yeah. So you're right. It is something that I'm, I'm quite passionate about. So the concept behind Made It Legal is I've created a digital legal platform for small businesses and medium-sized organizations where they can go to the, the Made It Legal website and search for a contract that they've been needing for their business. And then the platform will ask them a, a series of questions to get to know them and to get to know what needs to go into their agreement. And it takes all of their answers and uh, packages them into a custom-made contract that they can download instantly. The reason why I'm passionate about this is, as we were talking about at the beginning uh, of the episode here, legal can be very expensive. And especially in the, the small business and medium-sized business segment, it gets pushed back because it's not not something that they can shoulder in terms of cost early on. So this is a way to help organizations get high quality documents and to do it in a cost effective way. That's also because of, of technology, something that's very fast. The other side of it is the reason why I'm so passionate about it. And, and this is where we could go all down sorts of philosophical roads and is, you know, we only get so many spins around the earth in our lifetime. And what I love about entrepreneurs and small businesses is we have people that are, are passionate about what they're doing and they're also passionate about how it fuels their life and they can be self-directed and do amazing things. Like, uh, and I do mean this honestly, it's one thing to say, hey, I, I helped close a $600 million bond offering. That task is difficult for sure, but I honestly feel like it's, it's nowhere near as difficult as saying as a small business owner or entrepreneur that's trying to create the next big thing, I'm going to go out there and try to make something of value. And it's going to be from my own, my own sweat, my own tears, my own ideas. 
and create value from the ground up from scratch. You know, Made It Legal is designed for people trying to do just that. What really makes it different is that it's not just a, an online legal site. I'm also running it as a lawyer. And because of that, I can bring internally, vertically right into Made It Legal, full legal services as well. Yeah. And I think that's something that I found interesting about your approach here is, and I think it's the difference between something like a legal Zoom, for example, is that you can go on there, you can get what you need, but then there's also the, the connection to you as a lawyer. You're there, should they need to speak to somebody? Should they need to have that in-person sanity check, if you will? Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to think of it as more like a, a tech-assisted professional services company, you know, if we could put a, a label on it. Sounds fancy. Yeah, it sounds fancy. Right? <laughs> That's exactly the, the point of it all. And you know, like other competitors that I, I have, they talk about LegalZoom, for example, in the US and Rocket Lawyer. Those are the, the two industry leaders. They do have a program where they can set you up with an external lawyer, like a referral program. And I, I think that, you know, that, that's a good step, but we can do it much better by not having to send people outside of the organization. And that's where we can, again, marry a business mindset and a legal mindset and come in and be the tech platform where you can create and manage your legal documents and also your trusted lawyer and business counsel by your side to help you build your vision. Yeah. And you know, one of the questions I have down here, and I don't want to, I don't want this to come across as a pitch. Like that's not the reason why I asked to be on, but is the way you're approaching it there to me, I see it's like the kind of thing where a small business can transform their legal costs into an actual investment. And if they can start to, save money and time by, by using your platform, but then also have the, the counsel and the relationship with you to build, on, to build on their business, on their strategy. That can go a lot further than just paying a high-priced firm for a document that's going to sit on a shelf. Yeah, well, um, you know, maybe we'll just let you be, uh, be the head of sales now. For, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, man, I'm finding my, my pace in this podcast. But uh, yeah, and I don't want to be pitching what you're doing. I just find it very cool, man. And, and I appreciate it because there's, there is a passion there. So, you know what, let's ask a few more questions if we can before we wrap up. But what areas do you see small businesses making the blunders they make, which are easily or the most easily avoided? Mm, yeah. Uh, wow. So that, that could be, uh, we could do a whole podcast episode just on that. I'll give you two that immediately came to mind when, when you asked that question. One was, I have seen, for example, uh, many small businesses that go out to, to get bank financing or financing of any kind, really. It's interesting how many times I'll have small business owners in particular come to me after the fact to say, hey, I signed this loan agreement you know, or a commitment letter, and now I need help with legal opinions and getting it wrapped up. But the, the principal commitments have already been agreed to and signed. Uh, so that, that's a big pitfall because like, you can look through, and in saying that, it, it depends where you're going for your financing. Of course, like, I, I don't want to paint like a big brush. I definitely don't want to be taken to say, you know, for example, don't go get bank financing because that's not what I mean by that. In particular, there, there's some really great entrepreneurship centers out there from some of the, the banks and credit unions, you know, uh, here in Alberta, especially uh, that are focused on Alberta businesses, for example. But what I mean by that is 
you may have signed a commitment letter that says, as can be standard, that apart from the financing that you're getting from this particular financial institution, you're not allowed to borrow from anybody else. And that at times can be something that, that is understandable and that a business owner may want to agree to because particularly if their, their business is quite highly levered, then it's understandable that a lender would want to say, hey, we're giving you a lot of money. You're taking on a lot of debt. We'd be uncomfortable if you go and do the same with somebody else because now you've got more than you can handle. But on the flip side, and, and in my opinion, more commonly, it can be an issue because it does two things. One, maybe you've already borrowed from somebody else and now you're getting this you know, additional financing and you've signed this commitment and already on day one, you're offside because you promised that you won't have any other borrowings, but you already do. So that's a problem. But also, uh, you don't want to tie your hands more than you need to. So maybe you do want to have the opportunity to go get more attractive financing. You know, we, we saw that with COVID, for example, through different programs coming out through uh, BDC, so Business Development Bank of Canada and, and other uh, lending programs. You know, you want to be able to be nimble enough to take advantage of better opportunities when they come down the road. Another thing that I often see is this goes to speaking to involving your lawyers early on in the process where businesses have gone in and, and perhaps, for example, uh, they've developed an app or are working on a, an app or a, a software platform of some kind. And they've already spent almost six figures on the development without involving their lawyer. If you're going to be spending that money, then you want to look at things like how can you terminate the agreement if you need to with the developers and others involved in the process? And also, what about intellectual property rights? If you're going to be spending six figures on developing an app, then day one, we want to make sure that everybody understands who owns the intellectual property and that the agreement reflects that. So those are some of the pitfalls that I've seen. Well, man, I, you know, I, I do want to, you know, here we are at time. I know we could keep on going and perhaps we will another time, but any final thoughts we can wrap up with? Yeah. Uh, well, I just want to thank you for the great opportunity to be on here. I, you know, I, we can laugh about it. I, I know, uh, especially talking about these things, lawyers can be long-winded and I'm, I'm no exception, but I really appreciate the opportunity to tell the stories and the insights. And uh, in terms of final thoughts, I would say to your listeners, as an entrepreneur, I'm in it as well. And there's great opportunities in hard times. Uh, I read a, an article recently and actually, it was a book that I was reading about how more than half of some of the Fortune 500 companies were started during downturns and recessions and uh, hard economic times. So, uh, you know, this is a, there's opportunities out there. And when, when uh, executing on them, don't forget about your lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and bring them in early. Yeah, it does, it does make sense. And, but you know what? I think at times we're all scared away from bringing them in and sometimes a financial issue. So Greg, I really appreciate it, man. Thanks for taking the time. I know this is going to be well-received and we'll get her published soon. Excellent. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.